Hello, and welcome to Ask Dr. Dawn. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers, and this is a program intended for education and entertainment. It should not be construed as a substitute for a medical consultation. Let's just talk about the fact that just before Christmas, federal health officials confirmed that life expectancy in America has dropped for nearly a an unprecedented second year in the row. That's It's down to 76 years. It's dropped across all age groups. Maternal mortality has reached a high. Uh, rising mortality rates among children and adolescents. And after the vaccines came, all the other leading nations, that is to say economically leading nations of the world, saw their life expectancy rebound during the second year of the pandemic. That did not happen here. And one of the things that it may have something to do with it is a report that was published 10 years ago called Shorter Lives, Poorer Health. I'm going to tell you all about that at a subsequent program, but one of the statistics there really popped out at me because, as I said, the U.S. life expectancy uh, is lower than that of other leading nations, and it is dropping. And according to this report from 10 years ago, a calculated two years difference in life expectancy in the United States comes from the fact that firearms are so widely available that just about anybody gets them. Now, of course, there's the opiate uh, epidemic on top of that, which we own because other countries controlled the drug companies and we didn't. And on the subject of guns, uh, let me just say that for a, over a decade, mostly, I might add, Republican administrations, the, the CDC was forbidden, forbidden to, ca- to study gun violence. They were forbidden to gather or publish data about gun violence in the United States. That was a, well, apparently a thought crime to even think it. Now, I really, really think that we need to step back and take a look at that. Two years difference in life expectancy for Americans, merely based on gun violence. That's a pretty big thought. I'll just leave you a second to get your brain around that. It took me a minute, too. So the uh, EPA, another cause of uh, issue of decreasing life expectancy in the United States, is, of course, pollution. And uh, we're talking now about water pollution with these perchlorofluorine compounds, strong carbon-fluorine bonds, very difficult for the to be broken down. Bacteria basically can't eat them. Fungus can't eat them. They stay in the environment forever. They get into the water table. And just about two weeks ago, regulations were proposed uh, 
targeting these compounds, perfluorinated and polyfluorinated alkyl substances, these are called PFAS for short, uh, we're talking about Teflon, we're talking about Gore-Tex, we're talking about other compounds in waterproof clothing and nonstick cookware. And in fact, it was the very Dara, and they're also, by the way, in cosmetics, which I actually did not realize, uh, especially nail enamels and compound and some of those gel nail things. Even small amounts of this stuff increase your risk of cancer, but they're legal. Uh, the new proposal restricts two of the most dangerous compounds, PFOA and PFOS, to four parts per trillion in drinking water. Now, why did they choose that level? Uh, when, in fact, we know scientifically that there are risks associated with much lower concentrations of this stuff. Well, the reason is that this is the lowest level that can be detected using current laboratory tests. The information we have about other things is from te- is, is from diluting things at that uh, at that low level and still finding biological and chemical effects. Now, how broad spread is this? Well, it affects the water supplies of two hundred million people, and there's at least thirty thousand industrial facilities that are still using compounds in this same PFAS family, just not the ones that are statutorily uh, limited to four parts per trillion. And this is not a specific molecule effect. This is a class effect. Now, there's limits in in drinking water. And we can get it out. We can use carbon filtration uh, to reduce it to undetectable amounts which might be enough. We can use reverse osmosis. We can use charcoal carbon filtration and gasification methods. We, we can do all of these things, but it's going to be expensive to scale them up to public water supplies. It's going to take a long time. In the meantime, given the level of groundwater contamination that we already know that we're looking at, my recommendation is at the least... You should be drinking filtered water. You can filter your own water. You can buy charcoal filters. That'll take a great deal of this out. Maybe not all of it, but it'll limit your dose. And that's not a big expense, unlike installing a uh, you know, $500 reverse osmosis system, which is out of the reach for many households. But maybe charcoal filters aren't. And maybe we should be distributing those. Maybe we should be allowing those to be purchased with uh, the SNAP program. Because as we learned recently in Flint, Michigan, healthy water is kind of a thing when you're forming a brain. And you really don't want to be messing with with childhood brain physiology. There be dragons. All right, let's go now to uh, the first of the emails we received, and there are actually quite a lot of emails this week. So let's start out with a short one from Paul in Hawaii. And Paul sent a uh, just a link saying, well, what do you think of this? And uh, do you want to use it on the show? And this was a... Uh, a study called, I'll, quote, I'll read the title, Real World Effectiveness of the Oberon uh, 
and the Soberana Plus vaccine combination in children 2 to 11 years of age during the SARS-CoV Omicron wave in Cuba, a regression discontinuity study. And the first thing that I want to comment is, is this was on the website for The Lancet, and Paul found out about it through someone tweeting it and tweeting the link. So I kind of know the provenance here, uh, but it's a preprint. And at the top of the page, uh, there's a uh, statement. Well, basically, the tweet said, this stuff is extremely effective. It protected uh, children from symptomatic infection at uh, 83% and uh Severe infection at 95%. So this sounds great, but when you actually look at the abstract, it doesn't look so great. Let me read you the disclaimer at the top of the preprints that Lancet use. Uh, Preprints of the Lancet are part of SSRN's first look, a place where journals identify content of interest prior to publications. Authors have opted in at submission to the Lancet family of journals to post their preprints on preprints with the Lancet. The usual SSRN checks and a Lancet-specific check for appropriateness and transparently have not been applied. Preprints available here are not Lancet publications or necessarily even under review with a Lancet journal. These are early-stage research papers that have not been peer-reviewed. Findings should not be used for clinical or public health decision-making and should not be presented to a lay audience without highlighting that they are preliminary and have not been peer-reviewed, which is exactly what the tweet did. And, of course, I'm sure Paul isn't the only person who took away from this that the Cuban vaccine is awesome. I don't know if it's awesome or not, and this paper won't tell me that. And here's why. This paper did not use comparable groups. So they looked at uh, a million fully vaccinated children between the ages of 2 to 11 years old and 100,000 not vaccinated 1-year-old children. So we're talking about older children and very young children. And we know that the younger you are, the more vulnerable you are to infection and the more likely you are to get into trouble with your lungs. So so particularly with respect to severe COVID, this is what we call in science a confound. First of all, we're comparing apples and oranges, older children with younger children. Uh, And second second of all, the natural history of the disease in younger children is different than Older children, even children who are just a couple years older, have a substantially different uh, response and outcome to with the severity of their infections. So really not worth anything, but I'm talking about it simply because I want to emphasize that Twitter is not a good source of health information, and you can't or shouldn't repost something or send it even to your friends 
without actually going to the source material and giving it a look. I know it takes time and maybe you will miss a couple of thumbs up, but my goodness, I'm giving you know this person a big thumbs down for not doing their homework before they passed along something that shouldn't have been passed along in the first place. Our next email comes from Jared in Bakersfield. Neck issues. Hello, Dr. Don. I listen to your show whenever I can. You provide a tremendous resource to the community. Thank you. I think it was last year you had a show that covered neck issues. My question is a related one. I'm about to have a procedure called ACDF. And what that stands for is anterior cervical disc ectomy and fusion for the audience. The surgeon suspects I have needed decompression for some time because of how far my pain has spread. Can you please help me understand how neck pain can invade other areas of the body? I googled the topic and tried to decipher the dermatomes, but it just doesn't make sense to me. My neck pain is on one side, but I also developed pain in my middle and upper back and even my diaphragm area. Can you explain the basics of how this happens? Will it ever go away after surgery? Well, there's a lot here to unpack. And Jared, I want to thank you for sending me this because I actually learned in uh, researching this a little bit, something I had never come across. And uh, it has a wonderful history, which I'm about to share with you. But first, I'm going to answer your question. Uh, So the answer to your question is, get a second opinion from a neurologist. That is particularly important if your pain has crossed your midline. What's that? Well, draw a line immediately between your ears and draw it all the way down your back and down and through your butt crease and If your pain has gone across that line, in other words, it's the neck pain is on the left, but now you've got some diaphragm pain on the right. Well, in that situation, you probably have something else going on. And in fact, your abnormal MRI, uh, fixing your abnormal MRI may not, in fact, fix your symptoms. Cervical disc pain doesn't necessarily have a uh, dermatomal distribution, and we'll come to that in just a moment, but it never crosses the midline. A neurologist can do nerve function testing. They can actually look at the nerve that's coming out of the neck at C1 or C3 or C7, and tell you whether or not that nerve is showing signs of compression. And that's important because if you don't have muscle symptoms and you don't have muscle wasting, it's debatable whether you should go straight to uh, a surgical procedure, particularly a fusion. There are new technologies that involve disc replacement, that don't cause a loss of flexibility across the joint, that loss of flexibility tends to have a domino effect. So you lose movement, let's say, at C5, C6. Well, that's going to load C6, C7, and C4, C5. They're going to have to increase their motion, 
by, well, roughly 50% each in order to give you a normal range of motion of your neck. So you're going to overload the adjacent joints. And often what you do when that happens is it's a sudden overload and you blow out another disc. So that's often why multiple levels of fusion are done, even when only one nerve is being pinched, because, well, let me tell you, when they go into your neck, you want to do it once. You don't want multiple surgeries. I've seen some real disasters uh, in patient care over the years and people who had to have multiple neck surgeries. I've also seen cases where the fusion didn't work and that wasn't picked up right away. And so the damage to the nerves was permanent. Even though the person acted in the prudent timing, the surgery failed. So this is not a perfect thing. Now, Medicare, and I'm, I don't know how old you are, but let's, uh, let's assume that you're over 65. Uh, Medicare limits the amount of money that a hospital or a surgeon gets, and they, they pay about $1,000 to the surgeon for doing the procedure, and they, the overall cost to a facility, or rather payment to a facility, and that includes the surgeon's fees, uh, is about 14000 So your procedure is, is worth money to somebody. And whether you pay for it or not, you may pay for it down the line one way or another. Uh, the average, just out of curiosity, I looked this up, the average neurosurgeon makes uh, six, uh, the average reimbursement is $650,000 a year, and it ranges from about uh, 482000 to 828000 And that's some pretty, that's some pretty good money. You can see why they might be reinforced for operating, but perhaps wanting to operate on younger people where they're going to get more money because, again, Medicare has set a fee. Now, I'm not suggesting that you don't have a good surgeon, that he isn't honest and sincere, but I think you might want to ask him, uh, your question, because I learned about something called the Cloward sign. And this is just a fascinating little history of medicine uh, journey that we're going to go on for a minute or two. Back to Cloward sign, C-L-O-W-A-R-D. And I highly recommend you look this up. Uh, and if you go to Raynard Smale, so that's R-A-Y-N-E-R-S-M-A-L-E dot com, they have a blog, and you can search for Cloward, C-L-O-W-A-R-D, uh, like Coward with an L in there. So there was a surgeon. He was born in 1908, and he was the president of the Western Neurological Society in 1975. His name was Ralph Bingham Cloward. And Dr. Cloward was the only neurosurgeon in the Pacific when the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor on December 7th, 1941. He was assigned by the Army to remain in the Hawaiian Islands for the duration and of World War II. So there was an urgent need during war to build up the island's defenses, and a lot of the GIs were being made to tote, uh, tote that barge and lift that bale and lots and lots of hard work and lots of low back in- injuries. And most of these were discs, uh, that caused incapacitating low back pain. And the gar- army needed to get those men back on the job as quickly as possible. 
And that's where cervical fusion after total disc removal came. It was developed by Dr. Cloward in order to get the troops back so they could be lifting and toting and building defenses. Now, in a war situation, you tend to take liberties with your troops, including getting them killed or operating on them. And a lot of surgical advances come out of war. Everything from suturing, which comes out, which is brought to you courtesy of Napoleon Bonaparte, to uh, many other techniques. I think that ether was brought to you by the War of 1812, if I'm not mistaken, or it may have been, it, it may have been a little bit later in, from Europe, but course, surgical anesthesia was a major (laughs) advance that I think we're all very grateful for. Um, So in 1959, he published a a paper talking about how cervical interretrieval discs contribute to neck pain. And he was intrigued by this very problem because you didn't always get a dermatome uh, that matched the injury. In fact, you didn't often you didn't get a dermatome at all. And for those of you who don't know, a dermatome is the skin innervation. So this where your skin goes numb, more accurately than where you feel pain. So where your skin goes numb, if a nerve is being squeezed, it'll hurt more and it's nervy pain. So it's kind of sharp and stabbing and a little burning. And it'll also eventually go go numb on you in those areas, potentially. Uh, And either both of those are signs of nerve pathology from compression neuropathy. But it turns out that uh, compression neuropathy is not the only cause of pain. Sometimes uh, the pain referral pattern doesn't relate to where the nerve is being pushed on at all, uh, it it comes from the joint where the two discs, uh, where the bones of the vertebrae are fused together, or it comes from the anterior part of the disc itself. So this, this study that I'm telling you about in 1959, these were probably military patients who were getting surgery. And so while their necks were open... Dr. Cloward stimulated, presumably poking with a needle, the anterior surface of the cervical disc. And this is in people who are conscious and under local anesthesia. And they would say, oh, now it hurts between my shoulder blades a lot. And then the surgeons would numb up the front of the disc using some lidocaine and they would stimulate it again. And there would be no pain in the back. So this clearly establishes that the anterior surface of the disc refers pain to the medial border of the scapula. But it does not cause any neuro, it does not cause any neurotomal, um, lancinating pain, the classic pinched nerve pain. No, it's a dull, it, it's a dull, severe, achy, burny sensation. And, it can, and, and it's typically between the shoulder blades. But uh, there are also other referral patterns. So if you stimulate the posterior surface of the disc, uh, instead you might get upper shoulder blade pain, base of the neck pain, top of the shoulder pain, point of the shoulder, and down the posterior arm stopping above the 
elbow, but these are not due to a pinched nerve, right? And so dermatomes refer to skin, but there's something called a myotome. And the myotome is essentially the nerve from that level causing the muscle to tighten up. In other words, stimulating motor activity. And that's the motor activity itself can pinch the nerves from the thoracic spine, which is where those dermatomes are coming from, and cause phantom pain, so to speak, in the thoracic dermatomes. Uh, But the muscles here are coming from the brachial plexus. That's C5 to T1. So you can get very, very confused here. And so the early work by Dr. Coward with his diagrams um, are, are right there in the article that I uh, sent you to, the blog post. And I want to mention this blog post is written by people who are physiatrists. They are not surgeons. And we've known for a long time that a lot of times you can't find a visual source of the pain. You can't find disc disease. You can't find a uh, arthritis. And in this one study they're quoting, this uh, Bog Duck and April from 1993, many patients with chronic neck pain of over six months duration do not have any evidence of structural pathology. And yet 64 of them had po- neck pain that could be induced by either stimulating the facet joint or the uh, or stimulating the intervertebral uh, joints. And so there's a lot of phantom pain that's coming from different sources. And I want to give you a, a uh, have you take a look at this because the referred pain patterns are right here mapped out from a study that was done uh, in Japan, where they gave people an injection into the hypotheseal joints and the facet joints and showed where the pains went away, depending on what spinal level you were at in the neck. And it's super, super interesting. There's also this thing called myofascial trigger points, and you want to look at those too, because myofascial trigger points definitely can uh, go to locations, but again, they're going to stay, they're not going to cross midline. If you push on a right-sided trigger point and you reproduce your pain, that's important, but they're not going to cross the midline. If you're crossing the midline, that's really, really strange. Sometimes you don't get any neck pain at all, and you can show up with diaphragm pain that's so severe you don't even want to breathe. And I think I've just about covered it. You need a second opinion. Looks like we've got a call coming in. Hello, this is Dr. Don, and you're on the air. Hello. What's Dr. your Don. name? Hi, uh, What's your name Chris. there? My name's Chris. Okay, Chris. Chris in Santa Cruz. Okay, so it's germane to what you were just talking about. It's so funny. I was just talking with my wife. That maybe I should call about this one, see what you think. And then you were talking about neck pain. So here's what I have. Um, I've had this weird issue that's kind of, I'm 63 years old and uh, otherwise in good health and, and, you know, everything, you know, all the numbers are good. Um, I play piano. Well, what has happened in the last couple of months is an interesting situation where when, and I usually feel like I have really good posture at the piano because I played for years and, you know, learned, you know, really good posture. Mm -hmm. But 
I notice that when I start playing the piano, um, after a few minutes, I will get uh, uh, from my, my left side, I can kind of feel it, and it goes down to my pinky finger on my left hand, kind of like, like almost like a funny bone kind of feeling, like it gets like tingly and mm-hmm. then a little bit numb. And if I get up and do something else, it's not around. If I'm in bed lying down, it's not around. Except when I'm in bed laying prone on my stomach and my head is turned to my left side, you know, sometimes I'll start, it'll get that fuzzy thing will come in there. So obviously something's going on, and I'm just wondering, you know, what, is there anything I, I should or could do about it, or should I see someone about this? Or I mean, just in terms of that, mm-hmm. what do you think? Well, um, and I think what's happening is that you're entrapping your ulnar nerve, U-L-N-A-R. And there's two places mm-hmm. that can happen. It can happen at the wrist. Uh, but I think it's happening at the elbow because the clue is when I lie on my back at night, your elbows are mm-hmm. probably bent. You know, I I tend to assume the Egyptian queen position when I'm lying on my back and I'll cross my forearms across my chest. Uh, okay, but okay. Yeah, but a lot of people just have their arms slightly, their elbows slightly flexed and their hands are you know, in a neutral position. And exactly. that, it, and so it gets, you can entrap the ulnar nerve. It's a subject to a little stretch. Risk factors for this include working out, uh, because especially if you're working on your triceps. So like something like a rowing machine or a Trex machine, or, you know, one of those Trex things. Uh, uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, trying to get some muscle def- definition in your upper extremities. But if you if you don't stretch your triceps as you strengthen them, you can definitely get yourself into trouble. Uh, this is also I call it. I, I I used to see a lot of doctors get that get this, and some of them would actually get a release done at their elbow. And it wasn't a thing until computers came along, and we were having to type yeah, really right. quickly. And of course, the position of typing really quickly, and we didn't have good ergonomic workstations. Uh, I tried really hard to be ergonomic, but uh, in you know it, it's just really difficult when you're moving from room uh-huh. to room and space to space, and you're required to enter all use an electronic medical record. So you've got to look at it and type and find things, and you know you're mousing all over the place. So is that sure, your is that your sure. mouse arm, by the way? Just just wondering. Um, no, I'm a right handed. Okay, my left hand. All right, right? just so just yeah, just yeah, wondering. Yeah, yeah. Um, it you know you're built a little bit differently, one one humerus may be a little longer than the other, so you may have a narrower space, sure. something like that. But uh, And do you bicycle? I bicycle, and I work out, by the way. I do work out mm-hmm. my tri. I go three times a week to the gym, yeah. and, and I do a full regimen of doing it my whole life, practically, so that's always been a routine okay. of mine. So here's, here's um, how we're going to prove it, yeah. and then here's what you're going to do about it. So proving, okay, yeah, proving it. Me. So first, proving it. Okay. Uh, Get yourself an old sweater that you don't care about, but it needs to be a thick, a thick, fuzzy, soft sweater. You could use a polar fleece or something, Um, but you're going to want to cut the sleeve off and cut the wrist so that it's pretty much a cylinder. And then you're going to fold. Then you're going to fold it twice. So you're going to make yourself a donut out of this folded soft material, and then you're and then you're going to put it on your elbow at night. So you're going to wear that. Put on my what? You're going to put it on your elbow. elbow. Yeah, so you're going to pad the okay. elbow, and you're going to keep it from flexing completely because it's going to it's going to act as a stopper. So you probably won't get a get more flex than ninety degrees, and if you roll over, you're not going to 
you're not going to fold the arm up against your shoulder and, and lie on it. And it just, right, it just right. won't enable you to do those things. So you won't be pushing on the ulnar nerve and you won't be stretching it. And if that makes a difference in your symptoms, then yes, you need to, to start incorporating some really serious tricep stretches after your workout. Okay, tricep stretches. Okay, yep. uh-huh. All right. That's, All right. So oh, that's, right. and then call me back if that doesn't do it. No, I will. But I will say one last little bit of data sure. for what it's worth. Because I, I, I thought the same thing. You know, I know a little bit about anatomy. I studied it back in the day. But I knew, like, okay, that's my own nerve probably being inflamed there or, or doing, you know, I'm somehow mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. kind of uh, activating it somehow. But I also had a feeling like my left side of my spine below my neck seems to also have a little bit of an ache sometimes. And I think that radiates down through the arm. But maybe I'm just. Maybe you're right. Maybe it's more local to the arm, but I, I, I do, I do have this consistent little, I won't say pain, but it's kind of an ache and mm-hmm. I can feel it. And sometimes it's not there, but sometimes it is and it seems to be also on the left side. So is it I, about the sure level of, is it sort of in the shoulder blade region? Yeah, a little bit above the shoulder blade, right around there. Yeah, right, yeah, right. just below the neckline and yeah, that area. Okay. Yeah. But if I feel it, it feels like on my left side. Yeah. Right. So, uh, Again, I think that could be related to working out and a little bit of problem in the uh, levator scapular muscle, which levator scapular muscle it goes from the neck and it stabilizes the upper inner tip of the scapula. And so Uh, when you so like when you uh, when you throw your shoulders back, uh, you're kind of pulling all the way back as far as you can. Your scapula drops. When you shrug your shoulders, this one is active. If you carry a bag or on your your shoulder, you'll tighten that muscle to keep the scapula. Yeah, so that, the sca- that would be true. So because I carry the baby on my shoulders. Yeah. So those are those are just kind of uh, factors involved here, and uh, so stretching the pectoralis muscles. Ironically, pectoralis. That, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So. That that seems to work most of the time in my clinical practice for pain in, in for that location. So the first thing to do is try to is literally try to stretch the pecs, and uh, you know try to the try to too. you're saying triceps, stretch yeah, triceps and pecs. So that right, okay. exactly. I'll, no, I'll work on that because yeah. I'd rather be able to solve this by myself or with maybe better ergonomics. Mm-hmm. You know, literally you were saying, if you're on the computer, ergonomics are bad. People got a lot of problems, right? right. I, I know lots right. of people. Right, exactly. And, yeah, and I'm in that industry myself, so of course I, I also am on a keyboard almost every day. Well, we tend so, as yeah, we right. age our chest, th- this is just a natural tendency. We go, our body wants to go back into the fetal pr- position. And if I just paralyze <laughs> you and put you in a bed, you'll fold forwards uh-huh. and up and right. you'll go into kind of a semi-fetal position. And our, and as we as we age, essentially the front gets shorter and the back gets looser. Oh, great! And good, good and, to know that. Yeah, and so and and because we do so much forward work, and there, you're definitely building your pecs, lifting the baby. I'll just tell you, that's a great workout. So, <laughs> hey there, baby. <laughs> No, she likes piggyback, you know, and I, mm-hmm. she's two and a half, so she's heavier than she used to be. But yeah, you know, she loves it. So yeah, I, and, I, and I thought, oh, maybe, yeah. I'm, maybe I'm doing something you wrong might, with that. Well, you know, eventually she'll be a teenager, and she won't want to go on piggyback anymore. So <laughs> no, you just have to, ru- just have to last it out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no, okay. 
Well, listen, I'll try these stretches. Yeah. So you said a pec stretch and the and and the pec stretch uh, and, and a tricep stretch. Uh, yeah. Um, both, both of them. Okay, we'll get back to you as always. All right, thank you so much. Appreciate you're, your time. You're very welcome. Bye. Have a good day. Have a good night. Okay, right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And we're going to do uh, our next email from Lloyd in Seabright. Subject, AI training to spot skin cancer. And then he included a link from the MIT Technology Review. And uh, the following quote, in MIT Uh, Researchers trained in AI with pictures of suspicious skin lesions, moles, 80% evaluated by dermatologists, 20% to test, on the order of 90% success in identifying problematic areas. So uh, I wanted to uh, take a look uh, at the actual uh, article, which I did, and what uh, happened was that uh, researchers are using uh, deep convolutional neural networks, and we've been hearing a lot about these. And these are machine learning algorithms, and they're often used to classify uh, images, facial recognition, anyone. So if you can recognize a face accurately, well, how accurately can you recognize a skin cancer? And uh, so what they did was they had uh, dermatologists classified lesions in 20,000 images, and uh, these images came from 133 patients at Hospital Gregorio Marañón in Madrid, and a quote-unquote number of publicly available images. And so the system was trained on 80% of those images, And then they took the rest of the images that they'd picked out and they tested the system. And it distinguished more than 90% of uh, suspicious lesions uh, from non-suspicious lesions and complex backgrounds. So it was able to basically say, yeah, that's a suspicious lesion. And what we don't know really about this is how they validated whether these lesions were uh, actually suspicious and how good the image quality was. And their training set here was bad. So as you know, uh, these facial recognition software is great for white men, not so great for black women or other brown people of either pers- either any of the sexual persuasions. I guess I should make it an uncounted plural at this point. So the point is this is not this proves nothing because when you go online to look for images of let's say melanoma or something like that and these images are truly uh, validated because they are fo- genuine photos of genuine melanomas they are always really awful. These are, uh, they're always the like, oh yeah, that's a melanoma. If I saw that, I would definitely want to biopsy it kind of lesions. But that's not what you see in real life. And images from 133 patients, uh, you know, most of the images were coming off of the publicly available images, which means to say they were poster children. And so you need to do a training and testing set on typical photos, which, especially if people are taking them with their smartphones, are going to be somewhat out of focus and somewhat shaky 
and uh, won't have uh, scale, which is very important when you're trying to ascertain whether you need to worry about a lesion. So the risk of a technology like this giving false reassurance for false negatives really worries me because I've I've biopsied stuff or seen situations where dermatologists biopsy stuff that I looked at and said, there's no way this is dangerous. And lo and behold, it came back melanoma. So dermatologists have the confirmation bias having missed or almost missed melanomas, of biopsying everything beyond beyond a certain size, you're going to have a lot of false, po- you're going to have a lot of biopsies that don't turn out to, to be anything, but you're going to catch all the disease, which is important because the annual incidence of melanoma in the United States is about 100,000 cases per year. And while it is a very deadly cancer, it's important to know that our technologies have improved quite a bit, and 85% of that 100,000 have a greater than 10-year survival from the diagnosis of their cancer. So we've really made enormous uh, strides here, but we still want to find all the cases. So any technology we release uh, really needs to be vetted in the borderline gray area cases uh, to use facial recognition mixed ethnic uh, people with amb- with sexually ambiguous facial fi- features are the people we should be training our facial recognition on because those are the hard ones and you got to you you got to do the hard ones not the easy ones everything we do with ai you always got to look at the training set it is the critical factor in whether your ai is doing what you think it's doing by the way fun fact uh, which states have the greatest number of melanomas? Well, if you were anything like me, you thought, well, you know, southern states, maybe Florida, uh, Calif- maybe uh, Florida, California, the desert countries. Actually, no, nothing below the 37th parallel, which is where you generally make vitamin D all year round, which may have something to do with this, has the greatest number of melanoma cases. The top three in the United States, Utah, Vermont, and Minnesota. Utah, Vermont, and Minnesota. I mean, in some of these places, the people never even take their clothes off most of the year. So what's up with this? And I did check. It doesn't track, it doesn't uh, track with vitamin D levels very much. In fact, vitamin D levels tend to be lower in Florida and California. Uh, and uh, Texas, too. And I think that's because people use sunscreen in those areas. And, you know, maybe more obsessively because there's more sun in the summer, but their vitamin D levels are actually lower, which I found a rather intriguing fun fact. Now, we do know that if you have had melanoma, that your survival in is inversely correlated with your vitamin D level, which is kind of ironic because the first thing we tell people when they've got melanoma is stay out of the sun from here on. Uh, probably what we should be telling them is take some vitamin D supplementation, but we don't know that. What we do know is if your vitamin D levels are higher, your sur- your chances of survival are better. So maybe what we should be doing is telling them don't get sunburned, but get a little sun every day and keep your vitamin D level above, well, some threshold or other. We don't really actually know what the threshold is. 
you know, every time we ask a question, we discover the levels of our ignorance. Let's read the email from Aaron in Indianapolis. Uh, the subject, heart math biofeedback. Hi, Dr. Don. Recently, a fellow listener mentioned she had trouble meditating, and you recommended biofeedback in a company called HeartMath. I went to their site but was unable to discern which of the many options you might have attended for those interested in meditation and reducing stress. Was there a specific product you were uh, referring to? I'm looking to give something like this to a family member, and I know they would be much more receptive to using a piece of equipment rather than reading books or watching video training. Thanks for your show. I gain a great deal from listening to you every week. Well, Aaron, I'm confident then that you will hear my response, and thank you very much uh, to request the clarification. If you go back to the heartmath.com, and that's the word heart as in heartbeat and math like as in uh, Make America Think Again, uh, and go to the shop tab, you're, you're looking for the inner balance device. And this is a device which will hook into either your Android phone or your Apple phone, and it will do the job of measuring the heartbeat to beat variability and allow you to have a really good uh, experience with learning how to raise your parasympathetic tone. And then uh, this from David in Arkansas regarding the tea tree oil. David had written to us last week about getting into trouble uh, by breathing tea tree oil uh, and indeed, it probably did damage his lungs. He's in recovery. Uh, he just wanted to make sure I knew that the place he got the information was from Dr. Eric Berg, uh, who did not suggest breathing it, but did suggest 20 drops of that tea tree oil in a quarter cup of water will do the trick. And that you spray on surfaces. By the way, he tells me that it's that it also works for mold. I wanted to share that, mold being a problem we all have. And uh, 20 drops in a quarter cup of water in a spray bottle, that could work for me. I'm going to give it a shot. Might even discourage the spiders. Another bathroom issue when you live out in the woods. So let's go to our uh, caller. Hello. Hello, I got gotcha. you. So what can Hi, I... this is Kurt. Hi, Kurt. What can I do for you? Um, so I know you only got a few minutes left. I should have called sooner. Uh, love your show. Listen to it all the time. Great. So I have, I'm, seven, I'm 71, and um, I've been uh, pretty physical with my hands. And I had a, I guess you call it trigger finger in my right hand, little finger. Mm-hmm. And a uh, cut about four or five years ago, went to my general practitioner at PAMP. And uh, we ended up... Uh, uh, she's given me an injection of cortisone in the joint there at the base of the finger. It's, I guess it's the top of the phalange, I guess. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, and it worked really well, and it lasted for, oh, I don't know, maybe a year. And then it popped up again, and uh, so I had another injection, and, uh, you know, she pointed out that I can't keep doing that. And so, uh, you know, suggested a surgical uh, thing, and I wasn't clear, but... What happened is very interesting because it went away. First of all, the trigger finger, if for people who don't know, you know, you, I close my hand and then when I open, the finger only opens so many degrees and then I got to force it open and it kind of clicks and flings open. Mm-hmm. That's exactly, very good description. Like a, like, like a ratcheting effect almost. And it wasn't terribly painful 
at first, and then there was some pain. It's kind of, it's, it's not unbearable pain, but it's painful. Mm-hmm. So that went away. Then I started noticing it in other joints. So, and it, it popped up in my left hand. And now it seems in my left hand, I'm right-handed, but in my left hand, my middle finger and my ring finger want to lock up. When I carry like a gallon jug of water by the handle, mm-hmm. those crystal geyser bottles. So I carry that down. I get my bottle refilled. And I carry it in, you know, as you normally would with the four fingers through the loop and my thumb to lock it. And anyway, um, now I've got this kind of trigger finger thing going on with those fingers. And sometimes, and it changes throughout the day. When I get up in the morning, it's really stiff and it really locks up. And I have to really almost with the other hand force those fingers open Mm -hmm. because I try to do it just, you know, using my own muscle power in my arm, my forearm to force it open and it'll, but sometimes I have to literally take my other hand and pop them open. And, and so anyway, this seems the symptoms kind of go back and forth. And I was surprised that it went over to my left hand and I got a little bit in my right hand. No one, no one with medical, no one with medical experience would be all of that, that surprised. Uh, have you, okay, so specific question, or shall I just yeah. riff on that with the time we have left? Riff on it. All right. You're good. <laughs> so here we go. Uh, first of all, if you visualize the bones of your hand, and now I want you to mentally put some cro- some um, croquet hoops, you know, those little wickets that you're supposed to uh, hit the croquet balls through, they're sort of a, yeah, U- yeah. a U-shaped piece of wire. Now, I want sure, you to imagine sure. some ligaments along the bones of your fingers. And yeah. those are the retaining, the re- they're called retinacula. And what they're supposed to do is keep the tendon from bowstringing your skin out when you, you, when you tighten your muscles. Because the hand right. is basically almost no muscles. It has a few to spread your fingers, but most of the muscles are in your forearm. And it's all cabling, right? So sure. what's happening is if you, if you visualize what would happen if you didn't have those retaining wickets when you tried to lift something, the skin of your finger would stretch out because the tendon would sure. want to get really short. And rather than I moving your... studying the anatomy. Yeah, and, uh, right. And so what's his name? Uh, Leonardo da Vinci. All bingo. Oh, yeah, that. exactly. It's very good, very good. Drawing. All right, so now the tendon is moving back and forth, being pulled back and forth under those retinaculum. And that's how you move mm-hmm. your fingers. Now, if the tendon, mm-hmm. if the retinaculum gets irritated uh, or things get a little swollen in there, then the tendon yeah. can, or the tendon just gets a lump on it, any of those things, and they can all happen, mm-hmm. especially with sure. repeated trauma to the area, which, you yeah, know, if you sailor and a mechanic, sailor and a mechanic, and, and <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that wench, you know, when you're winding up a sail, that's a lot of sure. trauma to the palm of the hand, which is or you. Or just pulling on, on rope, on mm-hmm. lines, pulling yeah. it with your hands, yeah. you're gripping, it's yeah. all fingers and And forearm. holding on bicyclists, if you, uh, it, brooms, uh, people that, who hold power too. tools. Yeah. This is a, yeah. I mean, all of these things, you're traumatizing the fingers. Plus, insulin resistance makes this worse. So if you're pre-diabetic or you have elevated serum insulin, you might have a normal uh, fasting blood sugar, but still have a lot of insulin. And so the, that yeah. actually causes a little swelling and the tendon tends to get irritated and puff up a bit. And the tolerances are such that it can start getting stuck, uh, stuck and then 
pulling it through, of course, further inflames the wickets. Now the wickets are swollen, so now you've got an even tighter right. space. And that sounds right. like what's going on to you. So a couple of su- yeah. big suggestions, one of which is, you know that thing we are doing with the water bottle? Yeah, don't do it. Get yourself like a little luggage carrier or something and wheel the puppy in. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm serious. And when you do have okay. to lift something, wear those padded bicycle gloves, you know, the kind that, yeah. that pad the palm of your hand. I have all kinds of sailing gloves with the fingers cut out. Right, and also you can use those weightlifters. I mean, weightlifters gloves are perfect. You know, you score a pair of those for fifteen bucks. You know, the golf gloves, batter's gloves, something. Yeah, something. You want to pad the uh, the inside of your knuckle, the palm of your hand that's opposite the knuckles. You want to you want to pad that area and maybe out to the first joint of the fingers. And when you're carrying stuff that will really start to reduce the, the level of inflammation and irritation that you're experiencing. Yeah, and I'm thinking if I ignored it, it'd go away. No, it'll just get worse. <laughs> uh, okay. Another thing that you can do, which if, if it's really bugging you at night, is you can put a roll, like uh, something about the size of an ace bandage or uh, a, a rolled, maybe a single rolled up sock, and kind of put that in your hand. I like the ace, yeah. the ace bandage because you just basically take one ace bandage and then you take, then you, you roll a second one very loosely. You're not trying to compress it, but you just want right. not to let it go into a fist overnight. So okay. if you keep your fingers loose, so fill your hand, fill your while hand, you're sleeping. fill your hand yeah. while you're sleeping, or at least the one that's giving you a lot of trouble at the moment. And okay. that way you won't lock because you won't get past you you won't get it past the point where it's going to freeze on you because there's uh, one spot where it's catching that's the spot sometimes you can feel it when I examine people to try to figure out where to give the shot because I yeah. do quite a lot of those um, acupuncture can be helpful for this which is a little counterintuitive but you know acupuncture is not covered by most people's insurance so I'm a little reluctant right. to do that I'm sorry we've got to go. It's time for okay. me to clear the uh, clear the uh, if you would speak clear on the board. subject again sometime would be great. All right. Well, thanks again for the call. Bye bye. All right. Thank you, Doctor Don. Well, that's about all for this week's podcast. Please go to askdrdon.com for news about our future plans, or follow my tweets at at askdrdon. For now, this is. Dr. Don saying so long and stay healthy. Ask Dr. Don is brought to you by Jiva Media. Production and editing by Charles Mansky. Music by John Scoville.